The following lecture was delivered at the 11th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shachet will now present a lecture entitled Yisker, Between Here and There. One of the highlights, of course, of the service of Yom Kippur during the high holidays, for some indeed essentially the highlight, is the recitation, the reciting of the Yisker. People who are otherwise perhaps never seen in Shoal at any other time during the course of the entire year, and some who could hardly even manage more than just even a few hours on Yom Kippur, if there is but one hour, it is the Yisker hour. And that begs a question, what is Yisker? What does it actually mean to remember? What is memory? Well, memory, of course, is a way of holding on to the things you love. It's a way of holding on to the things that you are and the things that you never want to lose. Memory is the ability, the power to revive again in our minds, in our hearts, and in our souls, those life experiences which after having imprinted may have disappeared or have been laid out of sight. So your memory is very much like the caboose of a train. No matter how far ahead you may travel, the memories, they always remain right there behind you. So you can try maybe even to shut them out, but you can never really hide from them. They are the past which you lived through which make you the person whom you are. They help to refresh your soul. They are always there to help restore your soul and to render it more fit for its prime function and purpose in being able to move forward. So on one level, on a most basic level, that is the power of Yisker. It is the power of memory. On a day, typically like Yom Kippur, when we are going to pause to reflect in our mortality, on the vulnerability of life, on who we are, and more importantly, on where we are heading, it's precisely those who were the integral building blocks in our existence that we conjure up and that we think about on the day itself. So yes, if all I can spare over my Jewish year, for whatever reason, is all of but one hour in synagogue, then that's the hour, the Yisker hour. But I want to suggest to you that there's something so much more than that as well. And it's something that reflects, if not consciously, then certainly subconsciously, a deeper reality of the connections between ourselves and our loved ones, the connections between this world and the next. Yisker itself and the way we react to it lays bare that beyond the Yisker moment, there is a certain truism that gives us and should give us comfort even if only a grain of comfort when grappling with the loss of a loved one. You see, the real reason I suggest to you that we are drawn, that people may be drawn into the Yisker moment is because somewhere deep down, we are acutely aware of the soul connections that take place between this world and the next. Somewhere deep down, we know, we sense that there is so much more to life than just our mortal existence, that there is somewhere beyond the here and now. And then therefore, we also know that our loved ones, though they may be sleeping, they are 
never gone. I remember when I first came to my community in London some 23 or so years ago. And I would often, at the beginning, recommend at Yisker, just before we began on Yom Kippur, people should take a moment at the onset of my speech to just close their eyes and think about their loved ones. And then after a couple of years, there was one member who came over to me and he said he takes serious exception to my exercise. And I suspect he was speaking on behalf of many when he said to me, I don't need you, Rabbi, to tell me to take a few moments before Yisker on Yom Kippur to think about my father when not a day goes by that I don't think about my father, and he died 25 years ago. And the truth is, I didn't get it then, but all these years on, having since experienced loss myself, I do understand where he's coming from. You see, people suggest that time is a healer. I suggest Whoever coined that phrase probably has too much time on their hands. Sure, time takes the sting out of the initial pain, but there is something so overwhelmingly final when losing a loved one, something that leaves this indelible wound, a gaping hole, which even if after time the hole gets filled somewhat, the scar, it always remains. It's an essential reminder of what you in fact lost and you can't get back. When you consider how loved ones are essentially pieces of some big puzzle, we are all different parts of some large, big, interconnected soul, then we all know that feeling when there's that one piece of the puzzle missing. Every morning you wake up, every morning you look at the puzzle, every night you go to sleep, every night you look at it, and that gaping bit from that missing piece is staring you in the face. I imagine over time, you get used to it, maybe you accept it, but you never get over it. And yet, here and again lies a critical point. We are all interconnected pieces of a soul, all part of one bigger puzzle. Why do we find that our loved ones are indeed always on our minds? Why do we see them in every sunset? Why do we imagine their laughter in funny moments, feel their presence, sometimes when we least expect it? because the hard fact is that they are there, that they are every bit with us. You see, the relationship between loved ones is chiefly of a spiritual nature, much more so than that of a physical. Ask yourself simply, the bond between loved ones, between parents and children, between spouses, between siblings, it's not something you can describe in practical, physical terms. That relationship is deep, it's intrinsic, it's spiritual. And in that sense, even as the physical may be removed from our midst, that spiritual bond, it remains intact for all of eternity. And as such, even when the physical is removed from our midst, a father continues to be a father, and a mother continues to be a mother, and a child continues to be a child. We know it to be true. That's the hard fact. We sense it to be real. And it impacts on us all of the time, and it draws us in. And Yisker it being the holiest day of the year, when we're that much more spiritually clued in, more spiritually sensitive, so we are more attuned to it. But again, it reflects a bigger reality as it applies at any given moment of our lives, all through the course of our existence. In fact, the idea that there is a life after this one, it's a cardinal principle. It's one of Maimonides' 13 principles of faith. In the Amida prayer, every single day, three times daily, we make reference to the idea. 
in the Mishnah and the Talmud, there is continuous reference to the whole notion of the idea. It's inconceivable that there should not be somewhere else beyond the here and now where one receives ultimate reward for the good that they did here on earth. Otherwise, frankly, what's the point? So what, so other people will talk about me and say I was a nice guy? So what, who cares? I'm not here, I'm gone. Think about the very first story you may well have learned in school, in Jewish school, or in Cheder, or whatever it is. The story about Cain and Abel. What happens? We're told that God accepts and likes Abel's sacrifice. And in the next moment, Cain gets up and kills him. And what happens? That's it. It seems to be all over. How does that really work? Think about the story for a minute. In one moment, God likes Abel's sacrifice, and in the next moment, he's dead. And Cain, who God wasn't happy with, he walks away. Is that justice? And yet the message is clear. Without belief in a world beyond this one, there is indeed no justice. The Cains of this world get away with murder, and the goodness of the Abels are for naught. True, this world as we perceive it is not always fair, but God doesn't remain indebted, and there is always ultimate justice and reward. If not here, then certainly somewhere else. There was a young man who once came to see the Rebbe following the passing of his even younger son. And he was waiting outside, looking especially anxious, very downtrodden, deeply sad. And there were a number of young yeshiva boys who were observing this. And then he went in for his private audience with the Rebbe. And he emerged a little while later with a spring in his step. And one of them had enough nerve to ask, couldn't understand why this transformation, what happened? And he went on to explain. He says, you know, when I went into my audience with the Rebbe, I actually lost it completely. I burst into tears. And I lamented the terrible and tragic and untimely passing of my young son. And he says, and then the Rebbe looked to me and said to me, if you knew that your son was somewhere else, perfectly safe, perfectly comfortable, would that give you comfort? And he said, of course, that certainly would give me comfort. And then the Rebbe continued to say, and if you could send gifts to your son that you know for certain he will be receiving, and which he appreciates, albeit that he won't be able to necessarily thank you for it personally, would you still send those gifts? And again, the man replied in the affirmative. And the Rebbe then went on to explain that every person, even as they pass on from this world, they're simply going somewhere else, to that one place where all is just and true. And the neshama, the soul, is certainly there, basking in the divine glory, feeling a deep sense of comfort and being at peace. And even as they are no longer in the realm of deeds such that they can no longer do mitzvot for their own sake, we here, their loved ones, the ones who remain eminently connected to them, can do so much for their merit. Every prayer uttered, every bit of Torah learned, every good deed committed with them in mind gives immeasurable joy and nachas to their neshama, to their soul. You know, when I stood watching, and some of you may relate to this experience, my father's coffin being lowered into the ground, and that chilling sound of the earth hitting against the wood, in that moment, I thought that a part of me had passed on with him. But over the course of time, an altogether different realization dawns. A part of us don't lie buried with our loved ones. A part of them continues to live on within us. The cessation of life is only as we perceive it here on earth. 
but we can continue undeniably to give nachas to our loved ones, even as they may no longer be in our physical midst. It never is too late. We can always reciprocate the love through the mitzvahs that we undertake, the extra good that we commit to in their merit. Sometimes maybe we are inclined to feel guilty about missed opportunities over here. Chance is gone. But the hard fact is there are no lost moments. We can still do something. We can still give nachas. The relationship endures. And I would add to that, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's a man thing that fathers and sons don't typically say, I love you, in the same way that mothers might do. Or maybe it's just me. But I can honestly say, I probably used those words and told my father, I love you, in the last week I was with him, more times than I may have in the previous 48 years. It's true. It doesn't always have to be said. It can be expressed in numerous other ways. But if there is one thing that Yisker focuses our minds on, it is the value of our relationships and the need to say or to show love to our nearest and dearest at every given opportunity. Because alas, there does come a point, sometimes when we least expect it, when the opportunity is no longer there, when we're no longer necessarily able to share in that same embrace and to be able to say, I love you. But, and this has to be stressed, at the same time, we need to know that it is never really too late. And although it doesn't necessarily involve the same kind of satisfaction, even as they are departed, we can still tell them and show them how much we love them. Only we express it through the spiritual embrace, through the learning that we do, through the mitzvahs that we do, which envelops their souls and gives them a satisfaction that is deeply profound. There was a little girl who was shopping with her mother in Walmart. She was about six or seven, beautiful little red-haired, freckled-faced girl standing there outside, and it's raining. They're standing with a whole bunch of other people just outside the overhead over there, the overhang at Walmart, waiting, trying in the moment to make their way to the car, hoping after a moment or two the rain will actually settle. And, you know, everyone's sitting there quiet, not a word exchanged. You're transfixed by the sound of the pattering of the rain hitting down hard on the concrete. And then one woman standing there, as she recalled, overheard the sweet voice of the young girl as it broke the hypnotic trance that everyone seemed to be caught in. She said, Mom... Let's run through the rain. And mom's like, what? Just let's run through the rain. And mom says, no, honey, we can't do that. We're going to wait till it settles down a little bit. So the little girl waited another moment or two, and then she said again, mom, let's run through the rain. And mom again repeats, but we're going to get soaked if we do. And she says, no, we won't, mom. That's not what you said this morning. And she's pulling on her mother's arm. And the mother looks, this morning, what on earth is going through my child's imagination over here? And the child looked up to her mother and she said, Mom, don't you remember what you said this morning when we were talking about Dad and his cancer? You said, if God can get us through this, he can get us through anything. And the entire crowd standing there were waiting with bated breath. You could pierce it with a little pinprick. Everyone was waiting to see what is this mother going to do. Mom is standing there reflecting in the moment Typically, one might just scold the child and say, well, don't be silly, that's not exactly what I meant or whatever it is. But this was a moment of real affirmation in a young child's innocent faith. And so mom said to her daughter, you're right, 
we can do this. If God can get us through dad's illness, God can get us through anything. And so with that, she proceeded to grab her daughter's arm, and they ran merrily through the rain, going out towards their car. And others who observed all of this also proceeded to do the same. And as this woman who was observing all of it commented and said, we stood watching, we stood smiling, we stood laughing. As others were running out, darting between the cars, through the puddles, they got soaked, and then they were followed by a few others, laughing like children. But maybe we all needed a little bit of washing. And it was good, and it was healthy, and it was necessary for all of us. Have you ever wondered why our bodies shed water? Tears, when we're sad. Tears are our earliest form of communication. Before babies can speak, the only thing they can do is cry when they want to vent their frustration, their pain, their hunger, or whatever it may be. Different languages can provide barriers to spoken communication, but emotions and the tears that accompany them, that's universal. The rain falls because the cloud can no longer handle the weight. The tears fall because the heart can no longer handle the pain. Scientifically, it's suggested that there are different kinds of tears that we shed as a result of different experiences. So when you slice an onion, there's one kind of tear you might shed, and when you are releasing different kinds of hormones as a result of an emotional experience, that's altogether a different type of tear. That's why you sometimes feel better after a good cry. Those tears, they provide the washing of our souls. Jews around the world, they assemble for Yisker because it's a universal language expressed from the depths of our hearts. It's a moment of rain, of tears, of relieving the pain in our hearts and washing the anguish and the sorrow of our souls. And the realization that we can always connect to our loved ones whose bodies may sleep, but whose souls are eternally aware and bound as one with us. And when we talk about those things, as I mentioned before, that we can do for our loved ones, there's nothing more powerful than the recitation of the actual Kaddish prayer. A little while back, I remember reading a comment on Facebook that somebody had posted just ending the recitation of saying Kaddish for his own parent. And he wrote about the effect that he felt in reciting Kaddish during his first month of reciting it. And then he says, and then after, nothing. And several others chimed in, posting their comments, saying along the lines of, I hear you, man. I felt the same. They're empathizing with his experience. And I remember I was entering into my last month of Kaddish when I was reading that, and it really disturbed me because Kaddish is a very powerful prayer that enables the mourner to connect with the dearly departed in a most dramatic way. From the moment that a loved one actually departs from our midst, from this world, there is a compelling void. There are no more conversations to be had. There are no more embraces to be shared. But there is Kaddish through which the souls here and there can still connect on a very deep level. Yes, there is a problem with repetitiveness, which may well cause a loss of momentum. The first time a young boy puts on tefillin, he's very excited about the prospect, treasuring each in circle as he wraps them around his arm. Ten years later, 15 years later, he's rushing through the process, monotonously just going through it as an obligatory routine rather than a cherished ritual. The very first time a young girl might light her Shabbat candle, you can see the glow of God in her face. I don't know, maybe years on and thousands of times later, something of that initial fervor is lacking. 
But whilst breaking the sense of monotony is always an ongoing challenge, Kaddish is different. And it's different because it accompanies an entirely different emotion. You're not saying Kaddish for yourself. You're doing it for the benefit of the soul of the dearly departed. And it is essentially a unique opportunity afforded to the living to still be able to dramatically impact the departed. Now, of course, the obvious question is, what is the significance of the Kaddish? There's no reference to the loved one in there. There's no reference to death in there. There's no reference to the soul or anything of the sort. All it really is is an elaborate praise of God himself, exalted and sanctified be his name. You'd think that if I have to take out time so many times daily, that there would be something in there that relates to me or my loved one. And yet the mystics explain that inasmuch as each of us are created in the image of God, and each of us contains a piece of the divine within, then when someone passes on, when a soul is taken from this world, a piece of God is also somewhat affected you might dare say, figuratively speaking, dies along with the individual. And the Kaddish contains elaborate words of exaltation, thus bringing solace to God, as it were, and by extension then also to the soul of the departed. You know, the greatest mitzvah that any Jew could ever hope to fulfill in their lifetime is that of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name. The criteria that Kaddish has to be recited and a quorum of ten men fulfills the mitzvah of I shall be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel. Fulfilling this unique mitzvah for the sake of a loved one again brings them indescribable comfort. And finally, there, are the, there is the unique significance of particular passages within the Kaddish. For example, the main response to every Kaddish is the Yehesh Me Rabbah Mavarach, May his great name be blessed forever eternally. That phrase contains seven words, 28 letters. The very first verse of the Torah, Bereshis Baro Elikim, in the beginning God created, the heavens and the earth, seven words, 28 letters. The opening passage to the Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words, introducing the Ten Commandments, seven words, 28 letters, 27 letters, seven words, 28 letters. Thus, saying Kaddish triggers this response linking to these two monumental events, creation, the giving of the Torah, the beginning of the universe, and the formation of the Jewish people. This too is an incredible source of joy and merit for the deceased. So the words of the Kaddish might not be about the living and are not about the dearly departed, but bearing in mind these dramatic points and the awareness of how one directly affects the soul engendering great elevation for them should also serve as a tremendous source of comfort for the mourner. And if one pauses just a few moments before saying the Kaddish, thinking about their loved one, thinking about the meaning of the words, thinking about the impact that they're about to accomplish, then they will feel privileged and moved each and every time. There was a woman in pre-war Hungary who had lost her husband, and she had no children to say Kaddish. She went into the local yeshiva and she asked the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the dean of the yeshiva, if he could ensure to say Kaddish for her husband. And in exchange, with a fair amount of money that she had left over, she was going to pay for the cake and the coffee of the yeshiva students for that whole year. 
And as it added gesture, she gave him a little bit of extra and said, it would be nice if you would have in mind anyone else who might need Kaddish recited for them as well. And she made and repeated that arrangement year on year for a considerable amount of time. And then, after a period of time, money was running short. And she was struggling that little bit more. And she felt kind of embarrassed. And it came time for the yard site. And she went into the yeshiva. And she went over to the head of the yeshiva. And she said, listen, this year I'm, I'm really struggling. And I don't even know how long more I'm going to be able to keep this up. But for now, here's again some money. Please insure on the yard site to say Kaddish for my husband. And here's a little bit extra. And then she proceeded to leave. And when she came outside, she looked really despondent. And she started to cry. And there was a man sitting there on the side. And he looked to her and he asked her, can I help? What's wrong? She felt the fool for suddenly pouring her heart out to a total stranger, but everything just came rushing to the fore. And she shared with him about her regular ritual and everything that she did year on year. And yet here in the moment, she's not sure she's going to be able to keep it up going forward. And she felt awful about it. And the man then and there proceeded to write out a check and handed it to her and told her with very specific instruction to take it into a particular place, bank, to cash it. And with that, he bid his farewell, and he was off. And she didn't really pay much attention to it, and after a few moments of regaining her composure, she looks at this check, and it's for a ridiculously large sum. And she still doesn't even know what motivates her to do this, but what the heck. She walks down the street, and she goes to wherever that bank is, and she proceeds to bring the check into the bank, and the teller looks to her and says something to the effect of, you know, this is a, an unusual amount, and we're going to have to get the manager to sanction this check. She says, fine. And at that moment, she's thinking, I need to get out of here. It's, you know, it's probably just some ridiculous hoax. None of us, if we think about it in our right minds, would have responded really to something like that. A moment later, the manager comes rushing out, and he summons her into his office, and he sits her down. And he looks to her rather menacingly and said, where did you get this check from? What on earth is she supposed to say to that? But she tells him the truth. She tells him her story of everything from beginning to end and this man that she met, etc., etc. And then she looks at this man and he's kind of shaking, sitting at his desk. And she said, look, I'm really sorry. I, I don't mean to upset you. I'll, I'll go. He says, no, no, let me explain something to you, ma'am. My dear lady, I am an irreligious Jew. I don't believe in anything. Well, I didn't maybe until now anyway. My father, he died a good number of years ago. Last night, my father appeared to me in a dream, and he chastised me for not having said Kaddish for him, not during the year of when he passed away, and not on the earth side of the anniversary of his passing all those years later. And then he told me that there was a rabbi in town whom he once knew and has him in mind when saying Kaddish because some woman pays him some extra money to do so. That woman now needs help with money to continue doing the ritual, and you should ensure to give that money to her. And then, of course, he wakes up and he says, I thought nothing of this absurd dream other than that, that it's absurd, that it's totally strange until you walked in. And then with shaking hands and a bit of emotion, he looked to her and he said to her, you see, the signature at the bottom of that check, that's my father's signature. Kaddish is the single most compelling means by which we connect between this world and the next. I remember, as no doubt some of you will, having recited Kaddish for the last time, and I was overcome with emotion 
when struggling through the final words. And in that moment, you think you're no longer going to have this unique connection. But on the other hand, you also know the job is done, the mission is complete. My father's soul will have surely received the elevation he so rightly deserves, and I have to be grateful for the opportunity of having shared in that. Sometimes when our loved ones become sick and have trouble moving, we become their hands and their feet. When they have trouble speaking, we become their voice. When they move on from this physical world, we become their presence here on Earth. But this isn't so far as the things that we can do for our loved ones above, even as they can no longer do them spiritually for themselves, especially in light of what the Mishnah tells us in Ethics of the Fathers, that the difference between this world and the next is that this is the world of deed. But at the same time, whilst there's no more that our loved ones can necessarily do for themselves, and we do it for them here, through this soul connection that we are speaking of, beyond what we can do for them, there is actually some things that they can do for us. You know, every year since I was born, apart from every Friday night at the onset of Yom Kippur, my father would put his warm hand on my head and bless me with the special priestly benediction, what we call Bechas Kahanim or Bechas Habanim, the children's blessing. And when there was that geographical divide as I got older and moved away from home, still there would be that moment just prior to leaving to Shul for Kol Nidre when I would call him from London to Toronto and he would recite the blessing over the phone. And then all of a sudden, there is that Yom Kippur for the first time in 48, 49 years when I don't have that experience. And I felt like I was missing it. And it hurt. And my heart ached. But fundamental to Jewish belief is Bechayehem of a Muslim Lund in their passing just as in their life, they do not become separated. So sometimes you might find yourself taking a walk at night and you'll look up to the heavens and you'll have a conversation. You can't do that previously. Beforehand, you always have to be restricted to certain time frames, time zones, etc., and the telephone and so on and so forth. But now, when there are no limitations to the confines of time and space. It's any time, any place. Because even as we can't see our loved ones, they are certainly watching over us. Even as we can't hear them, they are undoubtedly attuned to our words, our tears, whether of sadness or of joy. And I then knew in that moment that that Yom Kippur, like every year before, as well as the many that will follow thereafter, just prior to Kol Nidre, my father will still bless me, just as all of our loved ones spread their blessed hands over us. And we need to know that if only we want to, we can truly feel their warmth lovingly embracing our souls at any time. They are always blessing us, guiding us, each of us, just as they will have done all that time before. There was a young woman in Israel who had endured the pain of many infertile years, praying daily, yearning constantly for that precious moment of motherhood, and her own mother was upset that she never had the chance to become a grandmother prior to her passing. But after 15 anxious years and some advanced fertility treatment, she was overjoyed to experience that deep-seated emotion when the doctor tells you that you are pregnant, that you are an expectant mother. But it was the news that the doctor gave next that provided the real shock to the system because on account of her treatment, she had five viable fetuses inside her. Indeed, 
Several months later, she gave birth to quintuplets. And the delight of an instant family was immense, but the pressure and the financial strain couldn't be readily ignored. But we know what we're like as a Jewish community. Umik Amcha Yisrael, who is like your nation, Israel? So needless to say, in close-knit communities, and all of the neighborhoods, especially in Ashkuna in Israel, everybody got together, plenty of food was provided regularly, all clothes, hand-me-downs, etc. Everybody is sharing in the thrill of this miracle. And then there was one elderly woman from a neighboring community who sent in a check once a month. It wasn't a large amount, but it still provided needed relief to the newly struggling family. And after a number of months, the young mother wanted to personally acknowledge and thank this woman, so she got in touch and invited her to come to visit her and her brood. It was a sweet elderly woman who greeted her at the door. Her face was seamed but still radiant, and her effervescent smile belied the tears that had long since dried. She came into the modest apartment. She was given a cup of tea and some cake, and these two generations forged this immediate kinship. And at one point, the elderly woman was invited to come into an adjacent room to view some family photos. And then she fainted. And Hatzola, that's the Jewish ambulance service, is summoned. She's revived. She refuses to leave to the hospital. She sits up, and she says, the picture, that woman, that young lady on the wall, who is that? She says, that's my mother as a young girl. Why? And the elderly woman went on and she said, you know, I lost most of my family in the war, which is why I wanted to do my bit in helping another new family into this world. I was consigned with four other girls to a particular barracks. We were not religious by any means, but the festival of Hanukkah always meant everything to us. And so we wanted to set out to go and celebrate. So we managed to have some melted butter for fuel, for oil, threads from our rags for wicks. All we needed was to steal a few potato peels in order to serve as the Hanukkah, as the menorah. And so we did. We stole into the darkness of night to steal from the garbage heap. But we were caught, we were questioned, we were harassed, and we were duly informed that we were going to be executed the next morning when the commandant was awake. There was one girl in the camp who was treated differently. She was multilingual, and the Germans used her to help to translate radio broadcasts, especially as we were nearing the end of the war, and they wanted to keep up with what was going on out there. So we realized our plight, and we knew there's only one thing to do. We approached this girl, and we pleaded with her, and we asked her that maybe she can intercede on our behalf. Some smidgen of hope if she can have a word with the Nazi barbarians. And she told us, go away, go away. I don't want to be seen associated with you. Otherwise, they're going to kill me along with you. Leave me alone. We pleaded with her. We cried all to no avail. The next morning, the five of us are summoned from the barracks, and we're being led to our death. And then, as we're standing there awaiting our imminent fate, that girl comes charging out onto the muddy grounds, running up to the commandant, babbling away something to him, something about the Allied forces coming, and he immediately releases us. He's screaming. He's chasing us away in rage and disgust. Till this day, we don't even know what had happened, what exactly she said, nor did we even ever have an opportunity to properly thank her. That girl said the old lady, and she repeated, now those long lost tears streaming down her face once more. That girl, she said, pointing to the picture, that's the girl who saved our lives. And now, 
it was the young mother's turn to become visibly shaken with deep emotion. She's trembling from head to toe, not just because she had never been told about this heroic feat from her mother, not just because of this so-called coincidence, but because, as she explained, the night before I went into labor, I had a really restless sleep. And then I saw in my dream, so clear and so vivid, just as I remembered my mother just before she died only a year ago, she looked to me and she said simply, five for five. And I looked to her and I said, Mama, what do you mean? And she repeated, five for five. And then I woke up. It meant nothing to me, nothing at all, until now. Our loved ones, they are always looking after us. They stay close to us. They feel our pain during life's trying moments. And they yearn for our happiness, sharing in the joy as and when life presents its better times. They appeal on our behalf. They see to it that the Almighty is Neitzer Chesed Lo'alofim. He repays kindness to the generations down the line. Nothing is for nothing, five for five. Let's talk very briefly, about the notion of guardian angels. We may be familiar with the concept, the term that we use in memorial prayers when we talk about melitz yosher, loosely translated as guardian protective omens. We speak about our loved ones in that context, watching guard over us. The verse in Psalms tells us that God will command his angels to guard you in all your ways. The spiritual world is a world of souls that surrounds us in harmony with the physical world, but on a different vibration. There are all these different spiritual energies that exist, and we can't see them. We can't see them with our naked eyes. If you had a suitable receiver, like a cell phone, can sometimes tune in to the different vibrations that go around us, then there are those energies that are there in the air, and that's how it works with souls and spiritual divine energy around us, vibrating on higher frequencies. And if only we knew how to tune in to these spiritual energies, then we would be really special. Nonetheless, we can tune in to our own spiritual guides and helpers known as guardian angels. Every person, Kabbalah tells us, has two guardian angels with him or her all the time. Of course, we know famously the first time we hear about guardian angels accompanying a person is in the Torah when Jacob rests for the night and he sees a transfer of angels. The Israeli ones are leaving him and the diaspora ones are now going to join him as he steps outside the land. Continuously in the Torah, mention is made of angels accompanying prophets, rabbis, etc. The principle of guardian angels is explained more clearly in a holy text called Tana Devei Eliyahu, written some 2,000 years ago by a great man who we are told learned with Elijah the prophet himself. And he explains that if a person makes himself a righteous person, then he summons for himself angels that will guide him along the path of righteousness. And if he makes himself, God forbid, to be a wicked person, then he brings upon him different kinds of angels that won't be all that helpful to his spiritual disposition. A great sage known as the Biala Rebbe learned this tract, Tana Devei Eliyahu, while he himself was in Siberia during the Second World War. And he explains simply that each of us have these two guardian angels. It's very similar to having friends. If you're somebody who treats your friends nicely, then they stay with you, and they want to be a part of you, and they want to guide you in the right sort of direction. But if you're going to mistreat your friends, you're going to kind of push them away, and you're going to attract an altogether different type of friend who's going to guide you down the wrong path. And similarly, 
in the context of angels. Our thoughts, our words, our actions have a profound effect on the sort of angels that we attract. Rabbi Chaim Vital, the great mystic, explains that the major gift that we have over the animal kingdom is our ability to speak. And that's the judging factor by which guardian angels are monitored and are given to guide us, depending on the way we use our speech. Do we express ourselves kindly to others? Do we speak harshly? Are we sensitive when we engage with our spouse and our children or otherwise? These angels, they help to balance our souls. They work together to create the energy and the opportunities in our lives to guide us and to give us a more purposeful and meaningful existence. In fact, interestingly enough, it's not just a mystical concept. One of the foremost commentators of the Talmud found in the back of every tractate of Talmud is Rabbi Moshe Idols, otherwise known as the Maharsha. And he actually writes the same principle that every time we do a mitzvah, we actually create a certain angel. So if you want to do something, if you want to create something good in your life, if you want something good to happen in your life, then do mitzvot by which you can create then angelic good angels, meaningful people, meaningful angels that will then guide you along towards the path of righteousness. The only reason I mention all of this is because, first of all, it reflects a truism again of the connections between our world and the world beyond. But I mention this more so because it could be a loved one who will have departed that can communicate with you, that can come back at some point to help you and guide you. It's a loved one who can, in effect, be that guardian angel for you. You know, you've often heard it said that a person feels a loved one's presence. They suddenly find themselves talking to them, or sometimes little things out of the ordinary that captivate our attention, too compelling to ignore. When someone you love, and indeed someone who loves you, passes on, whether family, a close friend, a teacher, someone who sees your spiritual potential, once they arrive in the upper realms and they choose to stay close to you, to work with you spiritually, that can happen at any time in one's life. You're not too young, you're not too old. It just becomes a question of whether you choose to tune in. You can connect with them in some way. And as Rabbi Chaim Vitel says, there's no need to exert any effort in doing so. Just talk, he says, as some might find themselves doing. They will hear. They do listen. The love connection you both feel for each other will instill within you a strong bond of communication. Or you can choose to ignore the signs and be closed. Then there are the more spiritual moments in our lives when this may impact more manifestly, especially like on a yard site or a Friday evening when the woman goes to light her Shabbat candles, or indeed at Yisker, during those auspicious moments on the calendar. As you think about them, and as maybe you find yourself even talking to them, as if they are really with you, you will feel the special, peaceful, loving, and reassuring energy. It is inexplicable, as each person senses this differently, but I assure you, you will feel it. It is real. Only I hasten to add, of course, it's personal to each person. We don't talk about it casually, nonchalantly, because we don't look to generate cynicism. And again, it's personal to each and every single one of us. There was a rabbi, a great rabbi of the last century, called Rabbi Yisrael Zev Gustman, a genius of a man who would have gone on to great things were it not for the war that got in the way of life. And his story was always a remarkable one of how he endured survival. But eventually, he became the head of a yeshiva small yeshiva in Rechavia, small section of Jerusalem, and he had a small group of yeshiva boys that he would teach on a regular basis. But once a week, he would give a more open class, a public class, 
and many bright minds in the streets of Jerusalem all came to seize the opportunity of participating in that wider open class. Judges, lawyers, etc. And one of the regular participants was a professor at Hebrew University, a professor Robert Uman. Later went on to become a Nobel Prize winner. He was once a promising yeshiva student. He decided to pursue his career in academia, but he made his regular participation of Guzman's share part of his regular schedule. It's 1982. Once again, Israel is at war. Soldiers are mobilized. Reserve units are activated. And amongst those called to duty was a reserve soldier, a university student who made his living as a high school teacher, Shlomo Oman, Professor Yisrael Oman's son. And on the eve of the 19th of Sivan, in particularly fierce battle, Shlomo fell. And he left behind a wife, Shlomit, and one child. Their second daughter was born shortly after he was killed. And Rav Gustman immediately mobilized his yeshiva, took them from Yerushalayim, from Jerusalem, to attend to the funeral. And after the funeral, he insisted on being brought to the family home. And the family, they just returned from the cemetery. They're now going to sit a week of shiva. And Rav Gustman comes in. He asks to sit next to the professor who turned to him respectfully and said, what you did coming here with your yeshiva and helping in the funeral, etc., that is deeply appreciated. But I know you do need to get back. So please, I thank you for being here. But by all means, make your way home. And Rav Gustman spoke and said, I want to share with you some words, first in Yiddish and then in Hebrew, so that all those assembled could understand. He said, I'm sure that you don't know this, but I had a son named Mayer. He was a beautiful little child. He was taken from my arms and executed in front of my eyes. I escaped. I later bartered my child's shoes so that we could have food. But I was never able to eat the food. I just simply gave it away to others. And then he added, my mayor, he's a kadosh. He's holy. He and the six million who perished in the war, they are all kadoshim. They are all deeply holy. And then he added, I'm going to tell you what is transpiring right now in the world of truth in Gan Eden, in heaven. My mayor is welcoming your Shlomo into the minion. And he's saying to him, I died because I am a Jew. But I wasn't able to save anyone else. I was too young. But you, Shlomo, you died defending the Jewish people and the land of Israel. My mayor, he is a kadosh. He is holy. But your Shlomo, he is a shliach tzibor. He is a cantor in that holy heavenly minion. And Rav Gustman continued, I never had the opportunity to sit shiva for my mayor. So let me sit here just a little bit longer. And Professor Uman looked at him and said, I thought I could never be comforted, but Rebbe, you've comforted me. You see, Rav Gusman didn't allow for the painful memories to control his life. He found comfort, solace in his students, in his daughter, in his grandchildren, and in every Jewish child. In fact, it is said that he used to attend with his wife every single year the big parade on Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day, of which we will be celebrating this year 50 years. And he would watch the children singing and dancing in the streets. And someone typically once commented to him, as you could imagine, expressed, especially in Jerusalem, what are you, a man of such, such stature, wasting your valuable time in such frivolous activity? To which Rav Gusman retorted very sharply, we who saw a generation of children die will always take pleasure in a generation of children who sing and dance in these streets. But this story overall demonstrates the compelling connections between past and present, 
the connections which transpire up above and those which take place down below, and perhaps, above all else, the connections between above and below, between this world and the next. Someone once asked Rav Guzman to share his memories of the war more publicly and more frequently. He asked, tell about your son, tell the story about your son's shoes. And Rav Guzman replied, I can't. I can tell you one thing, though. Those shoes, I think about them every single day of my life. Every night, when I say the Shema before I go to sleep, I think about those shoes. We never walk alone because our loved ones are always with us. Death can only take away the physical persona, but the soul lives on. Even after their passing, our loved ones are with us in spirit. They strengthen us when we face challenges. They smile when we celebrate. None of this denies the pain and the sorrow of death, but there is comfort in knowing that we are never really apart. And so just to finish on a bit of a lighter note, it is told about a bereaved husband feeling his loss keenly, decided to seek distraction by traveling abroad. So before his departure, he left orders for the stonemason to inscribe on the tombstone, the light of my life has gone out. And during his lengthy time abroad, he found love again. And before his return, he had to take in another wife. And before returning, he suddenly remembered the tombstone. And he know he's going to take his wife to the cemetery and quickly called the stonemason and said, look, I'm coming finally back to town. I need you to be creative. Do something with that stone that won't cause any upset or offense to the sensitivity of my new wife. And when they arrived back in town and he took her to the cemetery, he looked upon the stone where the mason had inscribed, I lost the love of my, sorry, the light of my life has gone out, but I've struck another match. With the departure of our dearly departed, a light in our lives goes out, but we strike another match as we kindle a new spark within our soul in awareness of the fact that life is eternal, that love is immortal, and that death is only a horizon, and horizon nothing save the limit of our own sight. And though we therefore lament the physical loss of our loved ones, again, we know that we're not alone. And finally, let us remember the principle that the Rebbe repeatedly emphasized, namely, we give ultimate nachas to our loved ones by taking to heart their life's model and aspiring to emulate some of their life's example. The very last words that I had said to my father before I had left back to the United Kingdom, just a week before his passing, and to be precise, exactly three years ago today, was that my oldest son got his smicha, that there was another Rabbi Shachet in the family. I said it once, and I said it twice, and it didn't seem to register. And then I said it a third time, and my father turned towards me, gave me a smile that will remain with me forever, and in barely audible words, he said, Baruch Hashem, with thanks to God. Yisker is all about passing the baton on to the next generation. We remember those who walk before us in order to pass on the legacy to those who come after us. That is the ultimate nachas. At the gravesite of a loved one, yes, we place a tombstone and we put an inscription, but the real tombstone are the loved ones who live on, and the inscription changes all of the time. It's up to us, the changes we make in our lives and the impressions that we leave on the next generation as to what that inscription will say. Even as you consider what you wouldn't give just to be able to have 
a departed loved one back at your side, even if only for a few fleeting moments. Ask yourself, how much are you investing in those loved ones that you still have as an integral part of your life? Sure, we remember the past, our late loved ones and what they brought into our lives. We also appreciate how connected and how we're still doing things for one another. But we also have to remember the present. Remember to find time to be there for those whom you love and for those who do love you. And do those little things for each other that really truly matter. Do you know what people's biggest fear is? Statistically, most people's biggest fear is public speaking. The second biggest fear is dying, which means when you're at a funeral, it follows that more people would rather be in the box than delivering the eulogy. But friends, we are alive. We are here today. And until such point when God determines that our bodies be returned to that box, and to dust you shall return, until that fateful day, we have to banish our fears. We have to be rid of those phobias, those things that just creep in and get in the way of life. We have to live life to the full. We have to celebrate every single day with those nearest and dearest. We have to live every moment as though it were our last. Learn to explore and love your faith a little bit more. Learn to trust and love God a little bit more. Learn to cherish and love your relationships that little bit more. And perhaps, above all else, learn to be less fearful and love yourself a little bit more. May the souls of our dearly departed be bound in the bond of eternal life. May we live on in good health to inspire those who came before us and those who will walk after us. Valkitsu Viranu Shachni offer until that day when those who sleep will surely rise up and dance with us once more. And let us say, Amen.